Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to pick up in verse 4. We're talking about dealing with the gray areas of life. There are a lot of things in life that just aren't as clearly stated as we'd like for them to be. How do we deal with those things? And that's what the Apostle Paul has been assigned to answer. You see, the Corinthian church had written him many questions. It started back in chapter 7, and now we're continuing to see those questions being answered in chapter 8. The downside of that is we don't have the questions. So it's very difficult to look at the answers when you don't have the questions, but we can just about pick up what the questions were by the answers that the Apostle Paul has given. Evidently, Paul has picked up on the arrogance of some of these Corinthian believers. And the, and the word he uses, and we'll see in a moment, is the word fusio. Actually, it's fusio. <laughs> it has two O's on the end of it. Not only are you arrogant, but you're proving to be arrogant by the questions that you're asking. It's the, it's the, it's the word used for a, a spiritual airbag. <laughs> they know all the right answers, but there's nothing on the inside to back up what they say. He's going to say that to them in a few moments. Well, the situation, situation has arisen concerning eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Now, as we said last week, and they had many temples, idolatrous temples, but right in the center of Corinth was the temple of Apollo. Now, remember, don't confuse that with Apollos. He's the second pastor of the church. But Apollo was the false god that they worshiped there in the center of Corinth. On both sides of the temple was the marketplace. Now, the pagan people would bring their sacrifices and give them to this false god. The animal, once sacrificed, was divided into three portions. One, the sacrifice itself. That third, one third of that was given, of course, to the false god. Two, the one doing the sacrificing would take the meat, a uh, portion of it, back home. It was his. And three, the priest would get the third part. Well, what the priest could not eat after it had been sacrificed, they just walked across the street and, and sold it to the market vendors, who in turn sold the meat as a delicacy. Now the reason that they would sacrifice these animals to these false gods was interesting to me. They believed that demon spirits wanted to get inside persons' lives. And they felt like that the demon spirits would attach themselves to the food. Therefore, take the food, sacrifice it, and that would cleanse it of the demon spirits. So this meat, having been sacrificed, now becomes a delicacy because there's no fear. It's been sacrificed. There's no demon spirit attached to it. 
in their pagan way of thinking, they see it now as a delicacy. Well, they would serve it at all the social functions. Now, the believers had long since abandoned this kind of practice. Not only the sacrificing to idols, but eating the meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Look back at 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9 just to make sure we remember where they had come from. Not all of them. He mentions the fact that some of them came out of this lifestyle. And we want to make sure that the very second thing he mentions, we notice, because it is idolatry. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. And he's talking about the unrighteous. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous, that's a person who has never been justified by putting his faith into Jesus Christ. An unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, he says. Neither fornicators, it's interesting here, nor idolaters. It's interesting how immorality and idolatry always somehow are attached to one another. He goes on and makes a, a long list of sins there that, that the unrighteous people live habitually. Then he says in verse 11, and such were some of you. You see, many of these people came right out of that same kind of background, came right out of idolatry, came right out of sacrificing to the false gods and eating this food sacrificed to idols. Now, the reason the problem began to exist in Corinth was that since it was considered a delicacy, you had meat now that was cleansed from the demon spirits, and wherever they would go, they would serve it. If it was a feast, a wedding, can you imagine we had a wedding here yesterday? Can you imagine going to a wedding feast and having that meat to look at there? And the question came, should we eat it or should we not eat it? And there seemed to be two groups of people there, just like there are in the 20th century. One group said, no, absolutely not. It will, it will defile our conscience. The other group said, oh, come on, we're under grace. You know there's no such thing as a true idol. There's only one God. You can eat the food. Besides that, it's well, medium well, and that's the way you like it. I mean, go on and eat it. That's the way they were. So you have the two groups. Now, which one is Paul dealing with? Very obvious to me from the text. He's dealing with the ones that understand they're under grace. They understand their freedom, but he's warning them, and everything he says seems to be directed at these arrogant ones who have a grasp of what is right, but they have no love mixed with the knowledge that they have. See, this is the problem. You can be doctrinally as straight as an arrow and stand on that truth, but if love is not mixed with the knowledge, what you tend to do is take what you know and cram it down a weaker brother's throat. And that's what Paul is talking about. The love has got to be mixed with the knowledge. Just because this group understands, yes, it's okay to eat the meat. That's not gonna affect your standing with God. However, you've got some brothers over here and they don't understand that. Therefore, you need the love mixed with the knowledge because the love that God puts within us is a love that keeps us from being offensive to our weaker brother. Matter of fact, look at verses one, two, and three. We'll hit it real quick and get in the flow. Pick up in verse four for our message today. Verse one, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Now the point is simple. Paul says we all know these things. But he says, remember that knowledge makes a person arrogant. That's the word fusio. That's the word that means a spiritual airbag. Knowledge will make you proud. God will resist the proud. But he goes on to say, but love edifies. Now, the word for edify there means to build up. So therefore, the love then that God produces, and it's a fruit of the Spirit of God, produces in us 
wraps itself around what you know and makes what you know palatable for somebody else so that you can be sensitive to them where they are and it will build them up. Verse two, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. In other words, when we think we've come to the place of full understanding, in other words, I've studied and studied and studied and I've got that down, Brother Wayne. Well, good. That means evidently you can't be taught anything else about it. And that also means you're not where you think you are. You see, it's not a matter of us possessing truth. It's a matter of truth possessing us. And when we're surrendered to what we think we know, then God produces the love. The love mixed with the knowledge keeps us from breaking a brother with that kind of knowledge. Love builds, it doesn't break. That's what he's talking about. Well, in verse three, he says, but if anyone loves God, he's known by him. That's a precious phrase there. If you love God. In other words, you're not gonna have this love for your brother until you have, first of all, this love for God, just as we heard sung a while ago. With all my heart, may I learn to love you, Lord. That's it. That's what he says. The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your body, your strength. And when I love him that way, then his spirit in me produces a love that spills all over my brother and it will not hurt him except to help him. It won't break him. It won't destroy him. It won't crush him because the love, see, is wrapped around it. That's what Paul is trying to encourage these arrogant ones who, oh yeah, well you're right. Yes, you've won the argument, but now at the meantime, at the expense of your weaker brother. Well, this brings us up till today. We begin in verse four, and there are two things that I want you to see if we have the time. I, I noticed from the first service, we may not, so I'll just have to unplug it, pick it up when we come back the next time. But first of all, Paul rehearses what they all knew. After saying in verse one, we all know, he says. Now what do they know? He tells them in verse four. Therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. Now his topic is still idols, specifically eating meat sacrificed to idols. They, including Paul, knew two basic things. And the apostle Paul makes it very clear. You already know this. Even the weaker brother knows this. What are they? Number one, that there's no such thing as an idol in this world. Verse four, therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world. Now, Paul, what are you talking about? They lived in the city of Corinth. They walked up and down the streets. They saw the idolatrous temples. They saw the, the gods that would be made out of stone and of wood. What do you mean there are no idols? I see them every day. That's not what Paul is saying. Oh yeah, you can see them with the eye. But what he's saying is there's nothing behind that wood. There's nothing behind that stone. There's no God there because we know that there is one God he's gonna go on to say. So there's no God behind that piece of wood. There's no God behind that piece of stone. All an idol is is a reflection of the imagination of the one who created it. That's all it is. And he, we know that, he said. All of us know that. That's why we came to Christ, the one true God. So first they knew that an idol was of no value, of no significance. Why worry about a person bowing to a stone and nothing in the stone? We know that, okay? But the second thing they knew was that there is no God but one. There's only one God. I love this, verse four. Therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there's no God but one. 
There is no God but one. Actually, the word other is in the text, the original. There is no other God but one. There's only one. The word other is heteros. Heteros means another of another kind. In other words, if you step outside of who God is and try to find another and compare that with God, there is none. There is absolutely none. They won't even show up on the scale. There's only one God. The prophet Malachi declared the fact that there's only one God. Malachi 2 in verse 10, he says, do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? The apostle Paul declared it in Ephesians chapter four and verse six. He says, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus declared it in Mark chapter 12, verse 29. He said, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now I want to tell you something. Even the demons in hell believe that there's only one God. That, that, that hits me kind of funny because they, the demonic spirits were the only power these pieces of stone and wood could ever have. And, and the demons themselves were smarter than the people that created the stone and the wood. It says in James chapter two, verse 19, you believe that God is one you do well, he says. And that was what they said in the morning and at night. It was a Jewish prayer every morning. And they were, from Deuteronomy, they were taught from young children to say this, God is one, God is one. He said, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. In other words, the demons have that figured out. There's only one God, they know that. So Paul says, we all know that idols are nothing. They're of no significance. And we know that there's only one God. Now in verse five, he takes into account, that's us, he, he's already spoken of the believers. Then he takes into account the pagan people. Yes, they see this differently. He says in verse five, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, little g, little l. Now, as far as the world is concerned outside of Christ, they haven't come to this conclusion. They still see these so-called gods. Now that's a powerful phrase, so-called. If you looked it up, it's the word lego. Lego means to speak as if with intelligence about something. And it's in the passive voice, present tense. Present tense meaning people going around giving reputation to something, a piece of wood and a stone, and the passive voice refers back to the idol. In other words, the only way anybody would even know about the fact that they're gods anywhere is because of what we say about them. And he says the pagans spread the reputation of these pieces of wood and stone and they give them their own exaltation. The word uh, is, is a powerful word there for so-called. It, it has, in other words, it's only as a result of what people say about them. The only credibility they have is what a person can give to those false gods and false Lords. Now, now, it's only the reflection of one's imagination. That's all an idol is. Wherever you go, no matter whether the Old Testament, whether today in a foreign land, an idol is nothing more than something made with human hands. And it's the imagination of the one who made it that it reflects. That's all it is. That's all it is. As a matter of fact, look over in Habakkuk chapter 2. Huh? You can turn to the table of contents if you want to. It's in the Old Testament. If you get to Matthew, turn left. If you get to Psalm, go right. <laughs> it's in the minor prophets over there. I promise you it's really there. 
If you get to Nahum, you're real close. Uh, thank you, Wayne. I didn't know that. Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 18. I have some friends over in South Africa. They say, Habakkuk. That's because they don't know how to speak in Tennessee. It's Habakkuk. That's what we're going to call it. Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 18. Now, look what he said. Now, remember, that's in the time when God spoke and quieted and just actually shut Habakkuk up, the prophet. But look what he said in chapter 2, verse 18. He says, what prophet is the idol when its maker has carved it? I want to show you now for sure. All it is is the imagination of the maker. Or an image, a teacher of falsehood. For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. That's all, that's all an idol is. It's the handiwork of an individual who doesn't know the one true God. He has to come up with something to worship. God put that within every man. You can go to the darkest part of Africa and they'll worship a tree. They'll come up with something, but they don't know the true God. Their imagination of what they think a God ought to be comes out in what they make, the reflection in what they make. Now, you say, Wayne, why are you telling us that this morning? Because do we need to hear that? Absolutely. Because folks, people are still pulling away from the one true God and making idols out of everything that you can think of. Church, denomination, they make idols out of it. And they start worshiping that rather than worshiping the God that's the centerpiece of it all. And we still do it. The flesh tends to do that kind of thing. It will make it in its own image what it thinks it ought to be. I never will forget one day I was channel surfing. You ever do that? I didn't know the term until just a few years ago. And I was just hitting that button. Yep, you know, you back up. It's kind of fun. Wives hate this, but men love this. We need to have the remote. And I hit one of these talk shows, and it was Phil Donahue. <laughs> Bless his heart, he met his match that day. Billy Graham was on the program. And uh, he looked at Billy Graham. He said, now tell me when a person is a, becomes a sinner. He said, he's born a sinner because of Adam. Born into sin, cannot get out of it. And Phil Donahue looked at the crowd, looked at the television camera. He said, come on, Billy. You're not going to make a little baby a sinner, are you? Come on, let him be 12 years old before you make him a sinner. And all the people started clapping. Billy Graham's son never blinked an eye. And the camera came back on his stern face and he looked at Phil. He said, Phil, you know what your problem is? He said, what? He said, you're trying to create God in your image. That is exactly where an idol comes from. When you think God ought to be this way, that's when idolatry springs forth. It reflects the imagination of the one who creates it. It has nothing to do with the one true God that we know. Matter of fact, the Antichrist is going to put himself in this whole mix one of these days, and he's going to proclaim himself as the, as the top one. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, he uses this word, so-called. He says, who, speaking of the Antichrist in the latter times, he says, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God, little g, or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, if you can put those two thoughts together, it reflects the imagination of the one who made it. Secondly, it gets its reputation from what the one who made it says about it. That's where it comes from. If everybody keep their mouth shut, it wouldn't have a reputation, and it would 
rust or whatever happened would happen to it. You know, if we went out here in the front yard and built a big statue and made it into a God called 2020, we'd have people come from all over the world come to worship to the God. How do they know it's a God? Well, I heard this and I heard that and I heard this. You see, that's how it gets its reputation. And all it is is reflection of the one who makes it. Now the world in their rejection of the one and only God has come up with many gods and many lords. First Corinthians eight verse five says, for even if there are so-called gods, plural, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed, now look what he says, there are many gods, little g, and many lords. Now, that's interesting. He uses both terms here, but he's gonna do something with it. Has to be the inspiration of the Spirit of God. I don't think Paul was intelligent enough to figure that one out. That's, that's God giving him this. You see, they not only created the gods, but they divided up the sphere for what they thought the God control. For instance, in the book of Jonah, they had the God of the sea. And somebody said, well, yeah, but there's also the God of the wind. Oh, yeah. And there's also the God of the storm. There's the God of the thunder. They got a God for everything. That's where it comes from. And Jonah, that's why the captain came to Jonah and said, would you call upon your God? Perhaps he will be concerned. He's the only one that knew the true God that was in charge of it all. They were upstairs on the deck crying out to everything. And Jonah's asleep in the bottom of the boat. What an indictment to the very one who knew the true God. But it gives you a picture. Many gods, many lords. We were in Indonesia back in last June. I was with uh, Tassos Ionidis, who's in our church from Greece. I was with Paul Jinks, Dr. Spiros Zodiotis' son-in-law and some others. I was preaching over there to a, a seminary, a big school over there. But I'd never been to the island of Java before. I'd never been to Asia, that part of the world. And being over there, everybody's real little. You know, they'd laugh at me everywhere I'd go to, you know, when I'd walk by. They came about my pocket, you know. <laughs> I'm not real sure what they thought I was. <laughs> I waited for somebody to bow down. I was going to whip him. Because <laughs> I don't know what they thought. But when we got over there, they took us out and showed us that animism is all over that island. And they have, on every farm, they'll have an agricultural god. Isn't that nice? <laughs> okay, you'd have loved it. They had these big gods. I mean, now I'm not talking about 10 foot high. I'm talking about 110 feet high and 75 foot wide. I mean, biggest things you've ever seen in your life. And they would sit there and watch over the fields. That made me feel better, just knowing that they were there. Matter of fact, one of them was sitting there and he, I don't know how else to say it. He just had a big gut. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. But he just had a big belly. And he had his finger pointing. That cracked me up. We were riding down the road and I saw that I had him stop. I mean, that thing was a half mile away. I had to get to where that thing was because that just cracked me up. You know how in basketball when somebody dunks a ball and somebody goes, that's what it looked like, isn't it? I don't know what just happened. Well, I had to have my picture taken beside it. So I walked up and stood beside the thing and it swamped me. And Tasso started laughing. And I said, Tasso, what are you laughing at? He said, I can't tell which is which. <laughs> that's why he didn't get back for a month and a half. You know, we left him over there. But while we were there, not only did we see all these gods everywhere, the God of the field, the God of the storm, the God of the crops, I mean, they got everything. We went out to the big Buddhist temple that's on the island. Now, can you imagine? <laughs> I actually paid money to go see this thing. I, that's where they get you. I thought, I felt so stupid. We got out there. Here's this big, gigantic Buddha sitting up on, but you gotta walk up these steps. I mean, it's huge. This is the matter. This is the God of that land. Have you ever studied Buddhism? You ever understand where it came from? A man named Buddha who says there wasn't a God and there wasn't any salvation and died. So his followers said, huh? Since he said there wasn't one, 
I guess he was it. That's where it came from. That's exciting. Boy, that'll bless you. Hang on to that one when you get in trouble. But when we got there, we had to walk up the steps. There were different levels. Every time you walk up the steps, another level, another level. And I asked the guy who was guiding us, I said, why do we have to walk up all these steps? He said, hey, you, the higher you climb, the more spiritual you become. Isn't that exactly like what man would create? He's going to get up there, isn't he? But in Christianity, it's not how high you climb, it's how low you stoop. We must decrease that he might increase. It's exactly the opposite. The deception continues to abound. All it is is a reflection of the imagination of somebody's mind. And the only reason people even go there is because of the reputation that others gave it by what they said about it. So called gods. We as born again believers know that in the midst of all this deception, there's only one God, one true God. And we know him through Jesus Christ. Now, Paul brings this one God up again in verse 6, and he begins to describe him. And I'll tell you, I don't know if I'll finish this or not. This, the, this thing, the more I got into it, the deeper it got. I, I apologize. I'm not, I'm not skimming the surface of what's here. I challenge every one of you to go back and just get your Bibles out and let God teach you in this verse. It's far beyond anything I'll say this morning. Man, incredible. He says, for, yet for us believers, there is but one God, I love this, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things are all things and we exist through him. Paul says there's only one God. And he says, hey, he starts off and shows us how we know him. You know how we know him? We know him as Father. Isn't that a beautiful thought? The way he wants himself revealed to us is as Father. Unlike the so-called gods of the world, we are the products of our God, whereas the so-called gods of this world are the products of man. We are the products of the God which we know to be the one true God. It was our Lord Jesus that revealed God as Father. 41 times in the New Testament, Jesus calls God his Father. We would never have known the concept had Jesus not revealed it to us. You see, Jesus is God visible. God wanted to manifest himself to man. So he made him visible in Jesus Christ who came and was born of a virgin. The term my father spoken of by Jesus is found 14 times in Matthew, five times in Luke, and 21 times in the Gospel of John. Now, let's go to the Gospel of John. Don't worry, I'm not gonna do 21. But let's just do a few of them to show you what this means to us. That stupid piece of wood or that stone that people bow to literally does nothing for its people. The people must do everything for its God. But I want you to see it's the reverse in Christianity. It's not what we can do for our God, or it's what our God has done for us. And it's the goodness of God that even leads us to repentance. Let's look at some of these. First of all, it's the Father who loves his children. And how does he show his love? He demonstrated by sending his own son to die for us. I remember being in a class of world religion when I was in college. Oh, man. I had a professor. I loved him to death. He loved me. I don't know why he loved me. I flunked every class he had, but I loved this guy. And we had a class. We had all these know-it-alls. You ever get in a class like that? Somebody comes in with knowledge and with no love mixed in it, and they're going to have to tell the teacher what they know. And a guy got up in class one day. He said, you see, Brother Kendall, he said, let me ask you a question. He says, why do we say our God is the only God when we go into other parts of this world? 
I mean, after all, Allah or Buddha or whatever, aren't they sufficient? Boy, I've never seen him do this. He took his glasses off. And I learned after that, if he ever takes his glasses off, get real serious because he's mad. Boy, he took his glasses off. He walked up in front of that classroom and he said, let me tell you why we think our God and know our God is the only true God. And he said, name me another one that left his throne in glory and came down and died on a garbage heap for the very people he created who then turned in sin and spit in his face. Name me one. And boy, he started there and he didn't stop. And I'll tell you what, before we finished, we were shouting, except he was very quiet, the boy who had made the statement. Matter of fact, I never heard another statement come out of his mouth in that class. He shut him down. Paul is saying, listen, we know God as Father. And if you go back to John, he's the Father who loves his children. How do we know? It says in John 3, 16, say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You say, how do you know I was talking about the Father? Because the definite article is before God. And the word Son is mentioned in the same verse. Anytime you find a scripture that has the Son in it and God is used and a definite article is there, it's God the Father. God the Father so loved this world that he gave his only begotten Son. We know that we know our God, the one true God, and we know him as Father, and we know him as a Father who loves his children. But also he's a Father who cares for his children. Go over to John chapter 6 and verse 32. Following the phrase when Jesus said, my Father, watch this. John chapter six, it's the father who gives his children the spiritual bread, the essential bread of life, the eternal bread of life, which is the Lord himself. Verse 32, Jesus therefore said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. And what is he saying? I am the, that bread. He that eateth of me and drinketh of my blood. That's what he's talking about. Listen, this is right before the Feast of the Tabernacles. The Feast of the Tabernacles was the Feast of Booth. And, and when they had this feast, they celebrated the wanderings of Israel in the wilderness. And during those wanderings, they had manna that God provided every day. And not only that, they had water from the rock. And Jesus is saying, I am the bread. It's the Father who gives to you the bread. I am that food. Our Father cares for his children. John goes on to say in John 6, 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Well, it's the Father who loves his children. It's the Father who cares for his children. It's the Father who protects his children. I tell you what, every time I get on this, somebody accuses me of preaching Baptist doctrine and it makes me so mad. If you didn't have Baptist and if you didn't have Presbyterians, and if you didn't have any of the rest of them, then what would Scripture say? I just wish people would get off this kick. Let it say what it says. Now watch this. You think you can lose your salvation? You're going to have to erase this verse out of your vocabulary. John chapter 10, verse 29. John 10, verse 29. He speaks of, the, of those that the Father has given to Jesus, his children, his people, his church. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Oh, how are you gonna get snatched out of the father's hand? Matter of fact, if you'll study a little further, Jesus said he's not only in my father's hand, 
but you are in my hand. You realize that the devil tried to get me out of Jesus' hand, he'd have to wade through the blood. And if he waded through the blood, he'd be a saved devil. <laughs> he can't get to me. I'm in Jesus. And Jesus, I'm in the hands of the Father. But hey, he went beyond that to protect me. He went beyond that. He made himself one with me. Go over to John chapter 14 and verse 20. Man, if this doesn't light a fire, just get saved or something. I mean, this, this is where it is. Look what he did. We, we don't even look at it half the time. John 14, verse 20. He says, in that, that day you shall know that I am in my Father. Now listen. And you in me. Now watch. And I, where? In you. He made himself one with us to protect us. I mean, you're talking about secure today. It's a father who loves his children. It's a father who cares for his children. It's a father who protects his children. But not only that's a father who disciplines his children. Go to John chapter 15. All we have to do is read one verse. It tells the whole story. This won't make it on television, I promise you. It will not receive donations. John 15, verse 1. It's the father who disciplines his children. Verse 1 tells the whole story. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the what? The vine dresser. You know what a vine dresser is? The husbandman, the one who comes in and takes care of the vineyard. <laughs> if you go on, he says, you are the branches connected to me, the vine. The father's the vine dresser. And what does he do? What's one of the things, if you've ever studied John 15, and that's not our text, so I'm not going to camp out there. But what's one of the verses that says, he does what to the branch? Prunes it. Don't you love pruning? The ministry of pruning. Let's put that on the Doodah channel. I mean, I'm telling you, you want to see people flip the channel to put that one on there. Oh, I'm a believer. Yes, name it, claim it, be healthy and wealthy. And God says, what? Chunk. Oops, missed something somewhere. He's a father who disciplines the children. You think he can't take care of his family? <laughs> he's much integrity in what he's done. Well, we can go on and on and on. I told you 21 times, 14 in Matthew, 5 in Luke. I tell you what, folks, we know our God, the one true God as Father, revealed by his Son, Jesus Christ. So in the midst of man-made deception, we have, we have this truth. We know who the true God is. We go to Indonesia and see all that stuff. We know who the true God is. We go to India and see all of that. We know who the true God is. Wherever you go or when you come back to America and see the gods that people have made out of wood and stone and whatever you can see, touch and feel, we know who the true God is and we know him as Father. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is but one God, the Father. I have a dear friend named Bob Dixon who's the head of the Texas Baptist Men. He and I have been friends for so many years. He's nine days older than dirt. But I love Bob. <laughs> He's a precious friend. Every time I call him, you know what he says to me? The first, first phrase out of his mouth, Wayne, let me tell you what the Father's been doing in my life. He just uses that phrase over and over again. And that has so caught my attention to remind me of the Father. That's the one God, and we know who he is. Now, as a matter of fact, let me say this also. Maybe you're here this morning, that doesn't really light your fire because you've had an earthly father that if God is like him, you don't have anything to do with God. Let me help you this morning by helping you to understand that God is nothing like an earthly father. God is the holy, heavenly father. He's the ideal of everything a father could be. That's who he is. He doesn't have to be. He is. That's who he is. 
So when next time you think about the Father being God, don't put him in the same category as your father if it's been a very difficult thing for you to live that way. Charles Stanley, I believe it was, for years lived under the, the thinking that God, heavenly God, the Father, was like his daddy until one day God overwhelmed him and showed him the difference. We know God. We know him as our Father. Well, anyway, what that's worth. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. Now watch what he does here. I love this. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Paul just previously said, in the world there are many gods, little g, and in the world there are many lords, little l. And he turns right around and says, but to us there's one God, the Father, and there's one Lord, his Son, Jesus Christ. He covers the base right there. There's one. And there, what he does here, they don't in any way contradict, they complement. He shows how the Father and the Son are equal. He says, everything comes from the Father and all of us exist for the Father. First part of the verse. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for him. And he turns right around and shows you how the Father and the Son are, are exactly equal. He says, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. He created everything, John 1, 3 and 4. And we exist through him. Isn't that amazing? He says the same thing about Jesus. He says about the Father and shows you that the two are equated. See, we're living in a generation of trying to make three gods out of one. I mean, I got, well, Brother Wayne, I received Jesus. And, I, and I'm really trying to get the Spirit. But I have, Wait a minute, now are there, how many gods are there? <laughs> if you get Jesus, you got the Father and you got the Spirit. You see, it's one God in three persons. You say, but Wayne, I don't understand that. I don't either. I just believe it by faith. If I understood it, God would be no bigger in my brain. I, I haven't got anywhere close to it. But that's what his word teaches. Don't make three gods out of it. He's one God. The Son is equal to the Father. And, if, and Paul didn't deal with it. But you can also go and see that the Spirit is equal to Jesus. He says, I will send another comforter, another alos, another of the exact kind. Another one just like me, my Spirit, will come to live in you. So there's only one God, our Father, who is revealed through His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul says, hey, we all know this. We know the idols don't exist as far as, as, as the deity goes. There's only one God, and we know that one God He's our Father. We know Him through Jesus Christ. Now, that's what they all know. But the second thing that I want to try to get to showing you this morning, and I won't finish it, the second thing is, this is what they all knew. But then he talks about what some of them did not know. And remember, he still has in his focus that arrogant group that says, oh, come on, eat the meat. It's good stuff, man. Grill it. It's even better. And they don't have any sensitivity to the people around them that don't understand that. So he says in verse 7, However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now I won't have time to spend on conscience this message. I will the next message. But obviously Paul is still talking about the believers. He says, However, not all men have this knowledge. The word knowledge, gnosis, you say, well, wait a minute. I thought he just said all men know. Yes, but he's talking about something else here. Even though they know what Paul has just said they knew, some of them don't have a grasp on the fact 
that eating food sacrificed to idols will not defile them in any way. They don't, the verse explains itself. He says, but some being accustomed to the idol unto now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Here's the problem very clearly put. Some being accustomed, you see, uh, they, they still think that the food sacrificed to an idol will defile their conscience in some way. Even though they knew better, they couldn't grasp it. They just could not grasp it. In fact, it says that they actually think they're defiled. You know, put this in another scenario just for a second. Do you realize how many people that don't like contemporary Christian music? Now, don't raise your hand. <laughs> but how many people really don't like it? But you know why many of them don't like it? They understand we're under grace, but they came out of a background that the beat of that music reminds them of every polluted thing they ever did. And when they hear that music, they can't get it. Whereas another person didn't, and he's under grace, and he can appreciate it. Now you got two people. Which one's right? That's the whole problem here in Corinth. Which, what do you do? Even though you know these things, there's some who have not grasped that and they think if they do it, they'll somehow defile themselves. The question that I always get everywhere I go is, Brother Wayne, is it wrong to drink? <laughs> At least 100 times by 100 different people. Well, let me, just, let me just put the scenario into what chapter 8 is talking about. Maybe you're so under grace that if you were in somebody's home and, they, and you were in Greece or someplace else and they offered you a, a, a cup of wine, you would pick it up and sip it just to be, not to, not to offend the person because you know you're under grace and that's not gonna affect your eternal standing with God. But you might be at the same table with somebody who came out of alcoholism and anything that smacks of that reminds him of his past and therefore he may know he's under grace but he cannot grasp it like you grasp it. That's the scenario. That's exactly what he's talking about. Now, what, what happens is you got some people who say, all right, preacher, you show, uh, you say, why do you do it like that? Because I've seen it. <laughs> if some people would quit doing it, I wouldn't know how it looked like. And it's always preacher. You're never Wayne. It's just your position. Preacher, <laughs> I'll quit drinking if you'll show me where tell me not to drink. See, and they, and they defend it. And they defended at the expense of the weaker brother. That's the whole teaching of Paul over in Romans. If you took Romans and went through Romans with us, when he gets to the end of the book, he talks about the very same thing. There are so many people that just don't have the grasp of something that you have. That's why he's saying it's so important to have God's love so mixed in there that he gives you a divine sensitivity to know what's right in a given situation that's gray and it's not as clear as you want it to be. You've got to consider the one who can't quite grasp it. There were those who if they went to a wedding, if it was their own children, wouldn't be their own children because they wouldn't have had it, but if it had been somebody in their family and they served them this meat, they would stand up and say, I can't and walk out. Offending everybody because they didn't grasp grace. And there were others who would point their face, look at that, that look at that person, it's legalistic. See, be careful. Be careful. It's by grace you even know what you know. And if you think you have come to know fully, what did Paul say? You're not really where you think you, ought, where you, think you are because you haven't learned even how to apply that to your weaker brother when it's a sensitive situation. Well, Paul is still speaking 
to that arrogant crowd. <laughs> oh, it's, oh, nothing wrong with it. It's good stuff, man. Throw some French fries on top of it, you'll never know the difference. Verse 8, look what he says. Now, this, this to me is an encouragement to the weak, but buddy, is it ever a warning to the strong? He says in verse 8, but food will not commend us unto God. I love this verse. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. In other words, to that group that, that can't stand it and just can't sense to, to grasp it, hey, if you, it doesn't defile you. It's not going to affect your standing with God. But to the group over here who says, I'm going to eat it, it doesn't affect your standing with God. <laughs> Either way you go. So to the weak, that's a strength. But to the, to the, to the strong, he says, look out. Don't boast of yourself being spiritual because you understand grace just because you didn't eat or you ate because that hadn't got a thing to do with your standing with God. See? Your standing with God is in Christ, not in what you eat. Well, my time's so running out. You know, when I got into this thing, the frustrating thing is, like when you get on that part about the Father, it just gets like a, you jumped off of a, of a cliff and there's no bottom. It's just, it just keeps going and going and you try to pull some things out. I was going to try to finish these two verses and I didn't do it. Well, look at verse nine. I'll show you where I'm going. You say, Wayne, you're not right on anything you said. Well, I hope you did. Because look at verse nine. Here's his whole point. That's the whole point of this whole chapter. But take care, he says, lest this liberty of yours somehow becomes a stumbling block to the weak. That's what he's saying all the way through it. Look out, look out, look out. When you understand, you could be the most dangerous person around. If, that, if, you're, if you're not walking with God and his love manifesting your life, what you understand can be used to break people. But if you're in the wrong way, but if you're living surrendered to Christ, what you understand will be used to build people up because love edifies. Well, you know, God has used some great people in my life. Jack and Kay are here today and Spiros is over the audience. You know what I have so appreciated about people that know more than I know? They've forgotten more than I'll ever know. I've appreciated the fact that they haven't taken what they've known and crammed it down my throat and squashed me. That's the key. If love is mixed with the knowledge, it'll cause someone to grow and build. But if it's not, it'll leave them in your tracks, hurting way back yonder because you didn't have the sensitivity of God on how to use what you understood. That's the key. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 